Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim. Healthcare, how to make it better. Dr. Joe Habush. We represent roughly 5% of the world's population, but 50% of the payment to innovation in healthcare. And for me, that may be okay. We spend more on healthcare than the entire GDP of Africa. And they estimate about a third of that can be reduced because it's due to waste or poor decision. Yeah, I think a lot of the other countries in the world that have great health care look at the U.S. and think we do too much. And that's where a lot of this extra expense comes from. And a lot of times we hurt our patients because we give them too much or do too much for them. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? So the future of America's healthcare system is up for grabs once again with the election of Donald Trump. More big changes are probably on the way. But there's a lot more to it than just the big debate we've been having for the last eight years about Obamacare. The national conversation on health outcomes also needs to include things like innovation, cost control, and the role technology can play. So our guest is New York emergency room physician and health entrepreneur, Dr. Joe Habush. So Joe, apart from working with patients, you've written really highly regarded handbooks on emergency care, and you're the CEO of MD Calc, which is a online and now smartphone app that helps make doctors make smarter decisions when they're going through various protocols for diagnoses. So welcome, Joe. Thanks so much, guys. Great to be here. So you say that waste and poor decisions are costing vast amounts of money. The $1 trillion figure came out during one of our conversations. <laughs> so, so what are you talking about here? Yeah, $1 trillion. That's a large number. It's true. But it turns out the U.S. healthcare system costs $3 trillion a year, which is a huge number. By itself, that would be the fifth largest economy in the world. We spend more on healthcare than the entire GDP of the continent of Africa. And they estimate about a third of that can be reduced because it's due to waste or poor decisions. So this is not about the debate over Obamacare. These are things that could be done now within the system. That's right. How can we reduce costs in a smart way without hurting our healthcare system? And there might be up to a third of our entire system we can save costs with. That's pretty a remarkable figure. Although I think for all of us who interact with the healthcare system, we see this overlap and redundancy and poor management of information. So it's not unbelievable. You mentioned Obamacare. You know, 
we want to focus a lot on this show on accessible near-term things that can be done. But as a physician, what's your experience of Obamacare been like? That's a great question. And we see folks have very strong opinions on either side of it. And it's become such a partisan discussion. And I think it's good to break it down and look at what's positive and what's negative and try to get away from the politics a bit. Right. So let's do that. What, what is positive about it? Well, what I love about Obamacare is that we have a lot of underinsured and uninsured patients in this country. And Obamacare was able to greatly reduce the number of uninsured patients. And I think we did that really well. But the other thing I love about Obamacare is when folks who want to decrease the uninsured, there's been a lot of folks who say, hey, let's have a one-payer system where the government takes everything over. This is right. Bernie Sanders' government health care system. Right. Totally can reduce the cost. We can negotiate with pharmaceutical companies, etc. Why don't we pay as much as Canada or England? We hear this all the time, and it makes a lot of sense on its surface. I have a lot of fear in that, and I'll tell you why. I know that the U.S. healthcare system overpays for technology and innovation. So we represent roughly 5% of the world's population, but 50% of the payment to innovation in healthcare, drugs, devices, etc. And for me, that may be okay because we're the rich country and we are the engine for driving innovation. That's real. That's really that, that's fascinating. Mu- that's music to Jim's ears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you love well, that. <laughs> well, I've, I've long thought that because the U.S. was one of the last countries to have a semi-government takeover of health care, it's been somewhat freer. It's a very rich country. We've been subsidizing everybody else for years. Pharmaceuticals that get developed here. And then in their early years, people pay these ridiculously high prices. But that's what it costs to develop the pharmaceuticals. Then they go generic, and it's this boon to the entire world. I totally agree. And for liberal reasons, I like that. We're a rich country. We can lead in this way. And so I find some irony in the folks who focus on the one-payer system not seeing that because they're often liberals. And I think Obama got this right. He saw that. He said, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater when we try to fix our known problems. Let's not get rid of what we do really well, and that's drive innovation for the world. But on the other hand, it's incredibly wasteful when you have people without health insurance who show up in the emergency room and deal with doctors like you when if they'd been insured, they would have gone to an ordinary doctor in an ordinary clinical setting rather than going to the emergency room. God, I know that. All too well, Richard. We are the safety net, the Band-Aid for a lot of the uninsured. So we're going to have this argument over what we should get rid of, what we should change over Obamacare going on for years. I suspect that even with the election of Trump, it's it's not going to simply be scrapped. So let's go on to some of the other things. I want to talk about waste. Um, How do we fix waste? It seems to be something that's talked about so often with regard to medical care. And and Jim mentioned it. Any patient knows there's waste. And there's also a great deal of obfuscation over the true cost of medicine when it comes to billing. That's exactly right. And I think a lot of folks confuse the issue of waste and expense with we aren't getting enough health care to all the people in this country, which is a separate issue. But I think if we focus on waste, we have to look why healthcare costs a lot, and if we want to reduce the cost, how we can do it in a way that doesn't damage our systems. But where can we reduce that cost? And in my view, there's a few main buckets for that. 
one of those areas is something I work really closely in. MD Calc is these clinical decision tools where we can provide information to the doctor at bedside when it's safe and actually better for the patient to not do specific workups. For example, in the emergency department. I'm sorry, what do you mean by workups? Yo, great question. So in the emergency department. Another great question. So you guys are I'm saying that too much, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Beating you up on this. <laughs> Go ahead. If a patient comes in and hits their head, it used to be that we would very quickly get a CAT scan of their brain to make sure they have no dangerous bleeds or skull fractures. And these really smart physicians out of Ottawa, Canada, did these large studies called now called the Canadian CT head rule. There's a few other rules like this. Where I actually just looked that up. I was on your site today. No way. And I was just looking for sample cases, and I just happened to click on that. And it's a diagnostic rubric where you that tells you whether or not to order a CT scan, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It can tell you this group of patients, which is 70% of the patients showing up, it's safe not to get a CAT scan. That reduces radiation for the patient, reduces cost, reduces the need to send the patient to the ER in the first place. So this is a great way to reduce cost in a patient-centered way. And the more we're able to produce these scores and get them bedside, we are not making the scores at MDCalc. We just get it bedside and usable. The more folks who create these scores are excited about making better scores. But the key here to me is that, as you said, it's not just that this is helping doctors make the right decision, but a huge amount of research goes into these scores. There's a lot of data into it. And the end result might be very similar to what a doctor would do from his or her own gut experience, you know, from experience, but it gives you the confidence to know that there, this is scientifically based, not just a one physician's life experience or a general advice. So it's much more precise Exactly. And on top of that, in our system, something we as doctors constantly think about is who's going to sue me because of this decision. Oh, yeah. Right. Now constantly. you can say you follow this, this, this approved diagnostic rubric right. that has all this research behind it as I, opposed I gotta to – interrupt you. What? Rubric. What is that? Uh, I don't do you use that term. <laughs> I, I, don't I think, use of, that I think word. of a rubric as a, as a formalized – pattern you use to do some procedure. Okay. I call that a rubric. Okay. I, in, in medicine, what do you call it? Um, we call these clinical decision scores, yeah. but hospitals also come up with their own versions mm-hmm. of this, mm-hmm. but they're not as evidence-based as these that we've created and are, right. are right. trying to show to the physicians. So this is the company you've co-founded. This is MDCalc, yeah. which, is the, uh, which is the smartphone app and the website that doctors can turn to. Yeah. yeah. How so, does that work? Yeah and, my, yeah. and and what have you learned about how doctors, do doctors get more efficient when they have this ready access to this information? I, absolutely. This is an area that, I, that excites me so much because it's a place where if we're smart about our research and we put the right kind of money and effort in the right places, it's about refining our decision-making. So in the end, once you figure out the decision-making, it's just delivering that information to the doctor at bedside. It's a way to greatly reduce cost while increasing Give, give, give us an example care. of how that works. How do they use this? Yeah, great question. It exists across all different types of specialties and in many different clinical scenarios. But let me come up with one. There is this disease called atrial fibrillation, AFib. It's pretty common. It's an arrhythmia of the heart. And people can live with this arrhythmia. The problem is it increases your risk greatly of getting a stroke. So patients who have AFib sometimes need to be on blood thinners. Now, the benefit of the blood thinner is it reduces your chance of having stroke, which can be quite high with AFib. 
But if you're on a blood thinner, you also could have a dangerous bleed, especially if you're older, you might fall, hit your head. And so we have to balance this benefit versus risk of being on a blood thinner. So what does the doctor do? Is there a calculation that gives doctors a percentage of, of risk for different treatments for different types of patients? That's right. It used to be that doctors would sort of put their finger in the air and guess, oh, you should be on a blood thinner, or maybe there's more risk here. There, it wasn't balanced in an evidence-based, scientific, mathematical way. But in the past 15 years, a bunch of cardiologists have done great large studies that have been externally validated in, in, in strong statistical ways to be able to create scoring systems so that we can measure the risk of stroke and the risk of bleed. And through this, there's about seven different scores out there. So Chad's VAS score, the Hasbled score that have been, and we didn't make this at MDCalc, but what we did was make it usable right. bedside so for the, the So the doctors can find it quickly. And they can read what the experts say about this score so they know how to apply it bedside. And we started this 11 years ago, and it became the main website and app for this service. So we're accessed by... 50% of U.S. doctors, which if you think about how many doctors still probably don't use the internet, it's most right. doctors who are right. doing these yeah. things. Yeah, the, site, the site gets close to a million, you get close to a million visitors a month, I think, or something like that, right? In yeah. the world, right? Yeah, and half yeah. a million in yeah. the U.S. when there's only about a million doctors in the yeah. U.S. So was there a moment in your work as a physician when you said, I need a better way, I need a tool to make these clinical decisions? What was your epiphany moment? Right. We know about these scores. You learn about them in med school, but it's hard to memorize them. And trying to pull them out and figure out how to use them bedside is an issue. And it was so obviously a problem for me to have. Sorry. Should I start over? When you yeah. save the life of that little three-year-old, that's what we're going for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a former magazine editor, so I was looking for that, that personal narrative. Right. Which, mom, brings uh, in, mom brings in her son, who's a three-year-old, and fell and hit his head. Right. We used to just go and get a CAT scan, and we right. have these great scores that we know reduces radiation for that kid, but it's hard to memorize those things. Why not just have them in your pocket, bedside, so you can apply them in the best way? You know what that does for the scores, too? It allows the score to get more precise because it can be more sophisticated because it's in your pocket. It used to be that we would have to make memorizable scores. So they had to be fairly simple, kind of a blunt instrument. Dumb it down for us ER doctors. That's right. right. Now it can be more sophisticated and there's a lot of trade-offs in my field that we see and more and more folks are able to use the more sophisticated scores and the scores coming out today are becoming more sophisticated. So too. when you say more sophisticated scores, you mean simply that the doctor has access to better evidence on what's the right form of care. That's right. More accurate. It's such, such an interesting path. And I think there's so many entrepreneurs whose stories I've read and the reason they got involved in the field wasn't about making money or wanting to be rich. It's because they had a passion to fix something. I came from a large family of physicians. My, my, I'm the seventh generation in a row. Sounds insane. Wow. Um, so you just had to be a doctor. Well, it felt that way growing up. I'll tell you that. My parents were um, immigrants from Iraq. Um, as vertical as we are medically, we're horizontal. I have a ton of cousins. Most people are doctors. It was expected that I'd become a doctor. And there was a part of my personality that was always a bit different. I like to try to think of big picture issues and dream up ways of solving it looking for problems in the world that I could try to solve systematically. But I was going to be a doctor. And a, a, 
a very hard thing happened to me when I was in high school. My sister, my older sister, who had been anorexic for eight years, finally passed from it. And I was a 17-year-old. I thought I was an adult at 17. I look back. I mean, this was this rocked my world. Um, and it's funny. A lot of people who become doctors say they know someone who was sick or died. And that's why they became a doctor. And I sort of did the opposite. I said, wow, this has really made me look at life and look at what's important in life. I need to really evaluate what I want to do and how I can make an effect in the world in a beneficial way. And I actually stepped away from medicine at that point and started focusing on how I can fix bigger picture problems. And the entrepreneurial part of me that was always part of my personality really came out at a pretty young age. So I started college. I wasn't pre-med. I got very involved in student government, worked on what at that time seemed like bigger picture problems. Yeah, yeah. So did you get your MBA before you got before you became an MD? Is that how you did it? Or was it a, one of the combined programs? Yeah, a combined program, actually. Mm-hmm. I was applying to med school, and I was struggling. Do I want to become a doctor? Do I want to become an entrepreneur? And I actually went on this trip to Argentina, lost, not knowing what I wanted to do. And while I was there, I was away from life, and I had this discovery that was hey, I don't need to make a decision. I'm going to forge my own path. I'm going to figure out how to do both uh, become a physician, but also fix bigger picture problems. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Back in a moment with more solutions. Oh, yeah, we have to remember to do that. We've got commercials coming in, so. Oh, nice. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're with Dr. Joe Habush. Yeah. So what are some other challenges where, where we can we can reduce reduce waste. reduce cost? Yeah. 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 Another area that we've we've heard discussed many times is a large, large portion of the cost of healthcare is spent in the last year of life. And sometimes it's an appropriate spending. But a lot of us in healthcare who deal with patients at that time in life realize that there's a part of our society that just doesn't want to face the end of life and not see it as part of life. And because of that, we rush into decisions that on their surface seem like the right thing. We should do anything we can do for your loved one. Even if the last six months is utterly miserable as a result. Right. Or if what we think of their spirit is already left them. And I think we have to, we have to see that for what it is and understand that a lot better than we do as a society. 
And I, yeah. and in the end, I think we will and, do what's best for the patient and that will reduce and, and I think there are a lot of very compassionate doctors in other countries who don't have the same view as Americans on this, that they, they're more likely to let people go when their time has come. Right. Uh, I, my, my parents yeah. both died in Britain. Mm-hmm. And they were both given morphine to ease their final days. Mm-hmm. And I've often thought what it would have been like for them if they'd been in the United States. They may well, have lived a couple of months longer, but would their quality of life in those last remaining months have been better? I, I wonder about that. There's this movement now by a lot of physicians to change the term. Do you know the term DNR? Mm-hmm. Do not yeah. resuscitate. Yes. yes. Right. Yes. So this is a order that says if your heart stops, we're not going to do compressions, et cetera, because you're near the end of life. And there's been a movement to change DNR to AND and allow natural death. Interesting. Because I've had experience with this. My, my father passed away two years ago. He had, we had a DNR. And, and in fact, we had a don't transport. You know, he wanted to die at home. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was old and pretty far gone. And, and that's what we did. And we brought hospice care in. I mean, there are ways to do it now. But, but you have to be pretty proactive. You have to be very proactive. And once people are in a hospital setting... There's a lot of momentum towards delivering care. Exactly. The payment system encourages that too, right? The hospital makes more money if they do more. So the doctor's not making more money by leaning toward DNR. They're actually doing what's appropriate for the patient. Money-wise, there's a bias. Culturally, there's a bias. And the fact that family members haven't thought about it to the last minute means when you bring it up, there's a bias toward, of course, I want to do what's the best. And it takes them some time to understand that what's best is to not always do something. That could really be changed and helped. Um, it, one of the things you said to me, Joe, when we were preparing for this show was there have been remarkable changes in the delivery of healthcare in patients' lives in just the last 10 years. So a couple of the things that I've seen that have really impressed me. One is in the area of cancers. We've really found ways to extend the lives of patients with cancer to the point where with some cancers, we're saying that they're cured and we're finding unique ways to do this. It used to be that we would have, we found really rough ways to attack cancer, quote unquote, chemotherapy. You know, the tricky thing with cancer is it's our own body's cells that have gone awry. So you have to find a way to attack those cells, but not the normal healthy cells. And that's tricky. And we found unique ways to do that in more targeted ways to use the body's immune system to become smarter and more targeted at fighting the cancer itself. And it's very elegant and subtle and smart and inexpensive. And because of that, we've seen metastatic melanoma used to be a death sentence. And over the past two to three years, over 40% of it's curable. And that's amazing. And we're seeing that become better and or better. Or childhood leukemia is another one. Exactly. Yeah. These were diseases that were death sentences. And now a large portion of the patients, some of the leukemias, a vast majority of them, will go on to live a normal life. Yeah. How, about, how about non-cancer? Are there any examples from outside that field? If the immune system is too strong or recognizes things that it shouldn't as foreign, it can attack the body. And that leads to all types of diseases you've probably heard of, rheumatic arthritis, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, multiple sclerosis. One of the things I'm working on now is a drug for multiple sclerosis, which is a terribly debilitating disease. And 20 years ago, we didn't have any good treatments beyond just symptomatic treatments. And then in the past 15 years, we've had injectable drugs that have been aimed at reducing the way our immune system fights 
our own cells. And we're getting better and better at that. And where do those advances come from? I mean, do they come mostly from government-funded research, or do they come from pharmaceutical companies? Great question. I think it happens in both spaces. So we need to fund the early research to discover potential drugs and pathways that is hard in our current system for pharma to, to pay for. But then later on, there are large clinical trials, which our system pays for through the pharmaceutical companies. So we need to bolster both of these. And those can be several billion dollars in some cases. Yeah. And you can spend hundreds of millions and have a drug fail. Mm -hmm. So you have to think about all the drugs that fail in the end. They either don't work like they should have. I I was part of a clinical trial once for a Lyme vaccine, and I was really excited about it because I'm a prime candidate for Lyme and, um, you know, mountain biking and stuff. And then the trial went on for years, and the drug hit the market, and six months later it was pulled because of some side effects. Wow. You know, and it just shows you how tough this is. I think sometimes people assume that this stuff is easier than it really is. exactly. So... In the, in the realm of solutions, um, mm-hmm. so you're an entrepreneur, and you've developed technology that helps doctors do a better job. What else can entrepreneurs do to help the system work better, better care, and ultimately bring down costs? Great question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, there's this big movement for entrepreneurs now. Everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. It's great. I think it's exciting. In healthcare, I think it's critically important for the entrepreneurs, if they're not close to medicine, to understand what it's like bedside for the patient from the physician's perspective. Because sometimes they're trying to solve a problem that isn't a problem or in a way that other folks have already thought of. We've talked a lot about doctors, talked about hospitals, talked about the system, but patients. How can we be better patients and what kind of difference can that make to the kind of care we get? Yeah, I think a lot of the... Other countries in the world that have great health care look at the U.S. and think we do too much. And that's where a lot of this extra expense comes from. And a lot of times we hurt our patients because we give them too much or do too much for them. But sometimes that comes from the patients. They're Googling their disease and they get worried because of that. Or they doctor shop. If their first doctor says, I'm not going to give you this treatment, they go to the second doctor or third doctor. So doctors feel this need to treat so there's some expectations, I think, that patients have. So, that, patients, wow. so patients can be part of this equation as well. I think Absolutely. we sometimes miss that when we talk about these big national issues. Yeah, I think we could do a whole show on patients. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Joe Habush, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Do you want to open? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a number that pops out at me, Jim, from what Joe Habush was saying, and that is we waste $1 trillion a year on health care. And his challenge is, how do we reduce costs without hurting our health care system? And it sounds like there's plenty of room for improvement. Right. And you know my perspective on this as the squishy libertarian of the duo here. I think it's all too easy to say, oh, let's have a big government program that mandates people not waste money. Let's, let's really you know, make sure that we ha- put all kinds of controls in place, and that should fix the problem. Of course, you know, my belief is that usually makes those kinds of problems worse. Not that there's not a good role for regulation, but if you think you can drive out all waste by an edict, you're going to be mistaken. What, what Joe Habush is doing, which I think is so interesting— 
is saying, let's look at this partly as a technical problem. Let's start at the bottom and help doctors be better doctors. They need access to all this information. There's all these formulas they use. There's all these, these I call them rubrics in the show, these different ways of, of, uh, of detecting, diagnosing patients, whether the, they have a concussion or this or that. The unsexy stuff. Right. And the doctors stuff have that to try we to memorize just that. don't hear about in public debate. But you know what? You help doctors do that better in the most simple, on-the-ground way. Care gets a little more efficient. We need thousands of innovations like that. That's, not, that's just one thing. What I loved talking to Dr. Habush about was his perspective that a lot of these problems can be made better if we break them down and take an entrepreneurial approach to them. That's not all we need to do in our healthcare system, but, no, it, doesn't it, get, but it doesn't get enough attention. People are always looking at the, at the top-down fixes, and they forget that healthcare is a bottom-up Enterprise. True, but we do have this problem, and I, I know that Joe agrees with me, I'm not sure you do, on access, that it's very important to make sure that people are covered. I would argue that there ought to be a mandate for covering people because I don't personally want to pay for somebody who can afford coverage, who has a horrible accident, and then has to be subsidized by emergency room care because that person couldn't be bothered to get health care coverage. Right, right. So, listen, we could debate Obamacare in the big picture all day, and, and that really wasn't the point of our interview with Dr. Bush. <laughs> True. Um, <laughs> But he did make a really interesting point. He said that, that our current system, yes, it's expensive, but a lot of that money goes to innovation. We innovate more than any other country in the world in terms of health care. After we pay for those innovations here in the U.S., they spread out to the rest of the world. Now, is that fair to us? Not necessarily. No, he, it really isn't but fair But he to makes us. a great point. We're the richest country in the world. So what if we overpay a little bit for pharmaceuticals and everything else? Because ultimately, those drugs are going to wind up in little villages in Africa and save lives. I, I'm not saying we can afford it, but what else are we going to spend our money on? We're so rich. Even though that affluence isn't properly distributed in our society, we are still so much richer than everyone else in the world. One more point that Joe makes, and I think it is, it requ does require a huge shift in the healthcare system, is we spend way too much money on the last six months of life. Sometimes we do have to look more seriously at palliative care, and doctors can't always be thinking of success in terms of how many days do we keep this person alive. Right, but... When do you want to start that process? If I go to the doctor tomorrow, I definitely want my doctor thinking about how many days because I want many, many thousands of days to be kept alive. Here's the problem with, and I'm a big fan of palliative care, but you don't know that it's going to be the last six months of life in advance. It's so easy to say like, oh, well, look at all the money that's spent sure. the last six months of life. When that patient presents, you don't know she's in the last six months of life for sure. Uh, and it might be she's got a heart condition. We can treat that. And guess what? She has another five years of life. You I don't agree, know it but, in advance. But our show is an argument against dogma. And if there's dogma around the medical community about always trying to keep somebody alive as long as possible, when it comes to a patient who's 95 years old or someone who's got dementia or someone who is 
almost in a vegetative condition, then this is something else okay. we need to consider. Yes. I, I, and I do think you know the, the system was lean, leaned way too much that way. This has been a major topic of discussion in the healthcare community for decades now. Not to say there aren't still incentives that push for too much care, but this is a, a well-recognized problem. Now I'm going to show you the, the paranoid side of the libertarian worldview. <laughs> I, wor- I do worry about creating panels or I, I want to avoid the dreadworth death, death panels, panels. Death but, panels. but there's an insight here and you you see it in certain countries that do have single payer that at a certain point there are strong financial incentives incentives for the system to cut down on care for those last six months if it's done in a humane way if it's palliative care for people who are on the way out that's great I really don't want to see that decision left up to bureaucrats. I get very leery when I think that people have strong financial incentives to withhold care, and I and I and I can, and but I think that people respond to incentives. I don't. I, I understand that, but we also have another problem, and that is we have doctors that are and and healthcare systems, hospitals that are paid for care. Yeah. And so sometimes a battery of tests, procedures will be done on a patient that clearly only has a few months to live because that's part of their profit motive. That is also so the, wrong. So there are perverse incentives in the system right now. And I and I think we should be looking at how to change those incentives. But I at the same time, I, if people think that there's an easy top-down solution that will never over t- take too much care of someone in the last 6 months of life, I think that's that's a fantasy. I don't like to see people overtreated, and I think that can lead to some suffering. At the same time, I'm very leery about somebody else deciding when my care or someone I love's care gets withheld. I'm putting on my rose-colored glasses that I that I use quite frequently. I've been told this by friends. And let's end the show on a hopeful note, and that is Joe was talking about the huge advances that there have been, even in the last decade, in medical care, in melanoma, childhood leukemia, and other areas of of treatment. We have to have a, a healthcare system that encourages those kinds of changes. I couldn't agree more. It's so important that we recognize the all the kinds of progress we've made and we're still making and the ways that healthcare does get better. He used a really interesting phrase. He was talking about about cancer treatment. He said, it's elegant, subtle, smart, and expensive. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I've got a friend whose daughter had childhood leukemia and who that kid is in college now. And that was probably insanely expensive. I'm glad we don't put the cost first. I'm glad we put that kid's life ahead of short-term thoughts about, you know, what kind of care is worth it. And I'm glad we have a healthcare system with people who are continuing to innovate and improve these uh, these kinds of treatments. Things are actually, you know, in many ways so much better than we give ourselves credit for in this field. And we're going to talk about other fields in forthcoming shows on how things are better now than they were decades ago. Stay tuned. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. I'm Richard Davies. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. The music's by Lou Stravinsky. And the show is produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. If you're interested in making a podcast, get in touch. The email is daviescontent at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.